Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco, and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in the Lion's Den Monument, Colorado, and I am here with my fellow Raider buddy, my fellow Raider fan. Silver and Black, baby. Silver and Black, Raider Nation. (laughs) Even though we're not good, Raider Nation till I die. Jason Burkett. So, first question, what you smoking? I have here a Romeo and Julieta, uh, is it 1876 or whatever, 1875, whatever it's called, I don't know. I'm not a cigar connoisseur. It was a gift for my birthday this past year by Josh Imhoff. Nice. Whenever I end up buying my own sticks down at Rendezvous, which is a cigar bar here in town where we meet for Holy Smokes once in a while, if I haven't brought one, I'll usually get one there. It's nice big long stick that lasts quite a while it's a good conversation stick quite a while you know yeah (laughs) and i have an illusione one-off this is one of my favorite sticks i especially love the orange band with a little peace symbol on it that's just interesting it's the first cigar i ever fell in love with interesting yeah so jason the first time we met at holy smokes i don't think you had been here very long you were still in the army, looking to get out a couple of years later, and uh, we just started having this conversation about once you found out I was a fellow Raiders fan, you and I had some nice conversations about that. I, for everyone that listens, they know I grew up in, in Wisconsin, and I'm a contrarian by nature. And so if everyone was a Packer fan growing up, and so I'm like, all right, I, I need a team that I can gravitate towards that's not the Packers. I love the Packers. Packers are my favorite team, but... There was something about those high school when I was in high school, those years when they had Bo Jackson and Marcus Allen and they went to the AFC championship <laughs> game and it was a magical team. Los Angeles Raiders, you know. No, the, whoa, the, whoa, 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 whoa. I followed them when they were the Oakland Raiders. Yeah. Okay. Like, I watched the Super Bowl against Philadelphia. Yeah. Nineteen eighty. Yeah. You know, Oakland Raiders. Always had been to me, Oakland Raiders. Even when they were in LA, they were Oakland Raiders. Well, I didn't, I well, here's the thing. I didn't grow up loving football until I started playing in high school. And so that was like 1987, 1988. The, I think it was the 87 season, my freshman year of high school. And so they were in Los Angeles at that time. Correct. And, and so that's kind of where I fell in love with the Raiders and Bo freaking Jackson. I mean, my goodness, that dude was... Dude, how about it was, the that highlight film when he ran over Bosworth? Oh, yeah. You know, against Seattle. That was fantastic. Monday Night Football. Fantastic. Just, just taking yes. him out and then, you know, yeah, two 90-plus runs and an 88-yard run. The guy if, was... If Bo would never got that hit pointer, I, I would have been different. I, I, I remember going to a game, a Milwaukee Brewers game, and I specifically chose that game because it was Kansas City in oh, Milwaukee. you saw Bo out in the outfield. I didn't. He had an off day that day, oh, and I bummer. was crushed. Bummer. I was crushed. I wanted to see Bo in the outfield. For sure. So, And his hip injury just was devastating for, oh, for, for me. For the organization, it was, it was devastating. Oh, yeah, it was devastating for the organization, but it was also devastating for me as a fan because I bought his shoes every year. Every year, Bo, Bo's Nikes came out. Those were the shoes that I got for, for sure. my school year. And so I still, to this day, am a huge Bo Jackson fan. And I want to, I love Bo Jackson. I want to have a cigar with him and have a conversation with him because That'd he be is fantastic, just... fantastic, wouldn't it? He's lived a very interesting life in for terms sure. of, I mean... Major League All-Star and Pro Bowler and, I mean, someone who probably could have been a Pro Football Hall of Famer 
had undoubtedly. He stayed, and maybe even been a major league baseball hall of famer. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I still remember, you know, when he cracked that bat over his knee and you Oh know, my gosh. Just I so the brute strength. Oh, absolutely. And then I remember going to go see Buck O'Neill. I don't know if listeners remember Buck O'Neill, but he was uh, one of the centerpieces of Ken Burns baseball documentary, oh, which I am a great. I am a Dude, that was such a great documentary. Oh my, I'm a gigantic Ken Burns fan. I mean, I watched Civil War when it mm-hmm. came out when I was in high school. Baseball, I made sure to watch every single episode when it was on PBS. Oh, and then great, my brother, it? my brother for Christmas one year bought me that set and also uh, Civil War. And yeah, I love Ken Burns stuff. And Buck O'Neill was one of those Negro League players that because mm-hmm. he was such a great storyteller, Ken really had him like a centerpiece of talking about the history of the Negro Leagues and yep. talking about Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson, all of those guys that never had the chance to play in the major leagues. Well, Buck came and spoke here in Colorado Springs at the Pikes Peak Library District. Geez, I want to say it was like 1998 or 99. Wow. And so a buddy of mine and I, who was an equal baseball fan, we got there early and we got to talk to Buck O'Neill before, while they were getting all set up and autographed books and oh, wow. it was an incredible but one of the things i remember buck o'neill saying during that talk was he said he's only heard three players in major league baseball that were true true power hitters that when they hit the ball and they hit it in that sweet spot it made a crack that was distinctive he said number, number one was babe ruth okay and so buck o'neill had been around long enough he was able to watch babe ruth play yeah number two was josh gibson who was the negro league yeah, it's a whole power hitter right. right around the time of Babe Ruth in the 30s and 40s. Yep. I'd say, yeah, probably 20s, 30s, and 40s, Josh Gibson. And he said the only other time that he was ever in a major league baseball batting practice and he heard that same kind of crack was Bo Jackson. He said those three had just unbelievable power and could just, oh, it, it was, it, yeah. So, but he probably hasn't heard Aaron Judge, though, either. I'm a Yankees fan too. <laughs> uh, I am that, actually the black sheep of the family, born and raised Southern California. Angels fans through and through. But as a kid, I got to meet Mickey Rivers. Yeah, who played for the Angels. Like I went to his house, went to dinner with him, movies with him. Yeah, and they traded him to the Yankees. So as a little little kid, probably three, four years old. Yeah, they traded him to the Yankees. I became a Yankees fan because I met Mickey Rivers. So I'm diehard Yankees fan. So Aaron Judge is the man right now for me. <laughs> All right. So born and raised in Southern California. What kind of home? I was you... actually born in Northern California. Born in Northern California. Born Where? in San Rafael. Okay. Which is north of the Bay. My dad was uh, a drill sergeant at Fort Ord, California, which is the Monterey area. Yeah. We were still living. We didn't get post housing until after I was born. Um, so I was born in Marin County General Hospital. Um, lived at Fort Ord. A year or two. I don't know how old I was when I moved to Southern California. Yeah. Lived in Orange County. And then in 76-ish, yeah, I was a kindergartner. We moved to Riverside, California. So. What kind of home did you grow up in? You said your dad was a... My dad was a truck driver. My okay. dad drove for, um, it's, what was it called? Newton Dairy. Yeah. So he was a milkman, basically, but delivered milk, cheese cottage cheese, all that stuff to grocery stores, whatever. Yeah. And then he did that for a while. Um, and then he started working for Roadway, which is another trucking company. 
so yeah, he was a, he was a truck driver. My mom was a uh, <clears throat> stay-at-home mom for a while, and then she got her teaching credential and became a teacher. She was actually my substitute teacher at one time, and I raised my hand. I said, Mom, I said, oops, sorry, Mrs. Burkett, I got a question. <laughs> um, but it was kind of frustrating as a kid with your mom teaching because, yeah, she knew everybody in the district, so I had to be, um, I had to mind my P's and Q's, and if I didn't, she would know before I got home. I still remember one day, I was a senior in high school, and I, I ditched school for a day, and I forgot to call in, call myself absent, yeah. trying to meet my dad. Yeah. And she found out, and uh, that Saturday, I was in Saturday school. Four hours. It was fantastic. <laughs> Siblings? Yes, I have two. Uh, I have an older sister. She's actually my half-sister. My dad previously married. And then I have a younger sister. So what kind of home did you grow up in? Like? Typical suburbia, you know, Riverside, California, working class people. Yeah. Played Little League baseball, played soccer as a kid. My mom wouldn't let me play football, like American football. Yeah. I'm careful to differentiate between football and American football. Football. Right. I have to differentiate that with a lot of my friends. Um, so I grew up playing what we call soccer. Yeah. Because my mom thought I was going to get hurt playing American football. Uh, so I didn't play football until I became a freshman in high school. And my high school didn't have soccer at the time. Yeah. Not until my sophomore year in yeah. soccer. The funny thing is, is I got more hurt playing soccer than I ever did playing American football. Because people don't know, soccer is a very rough sport. Yeah. It's a contact sport, much like football, yeah. American football. Yeah. So I played high, American football for four years in high school. What positions? As a freshman, I played receiver, tight end. I played like... Linebacker on defense, if I remember correctly. My senior year, though, I was a, a wide receiver and middle linebacker, which is a weird combination. Yeah. And I weighed a buck 65. <laughs> yeah. In Riverside. Which yes. Is not and what's interesting, too, is my senior year, I actually ended up playing against a couple future professional athletes who played for the Packers, your team. Yes. Um, Kyle Walker-Holtz, who played quarterback. Yes. And then, oh, what was his name? Uh, he had a twin brother. They went to Cal. He played defensive back for the Packers. Uh, I forget their names. But it was funny. My senior year in high school, my yearbook, there's a picture of me going for a pass. And this future Packers, like, I'm sitting on his shoulder pads. Because I was like, oh, I get back to the huddle. I said, you do that again to my buddy. I said, you do that again, I'm going to kill you. Because that hurts. So, yeah. <laughs> But I remember playing um, Kyle Alcoholtz's team, and it was crazy. Their whole O-line was like 6'3", 6'2", 6'4", all going to major Division I universities in yeah. Norco, California. So Norco was a really weird town in Southern California. Yeah. It's like this horse town within Corona, California. Like, it's really odd because people actually ride their horses to the grocery store. There are horse paths still to this day. So they're all these farm-type kids, you know, and yeah. just monsters. And we lost to them 3-0 in overtime. It was their homecoming game. It was, yeah, yeah. their coach was a little upset because we were supposed to get destroyed. <laughs> yep. So where did you go after high school? I went to the Army. Yeah. I actually joined the Army the first time. 
the summer of my junior and senior year of high school. My thought was to join the army, get my college fund. So my parents, having another sibling, I knew, my, you know, working class family, you don't have a lot of money for yeah. college. Yeah. I figured I could get the GI Bill, Army College Fund. I can pay for my own school. My yeah. parents can pay for my sister's school. Yeah. So I joined the Army at 17. My parents had a, had a sign for me. Why the Army? Um, my dad spent uh, some time in the Army. I was, lived at Fort yeah. Ord. Um, yeah. I wanted to be like my dad. I wanted to go to Fort Ord, California, which is kind of put me as the black sheep of the family because my grandfather was a retired Marine. He spent 30 years in the Marine Corps. So I joined the Army because that's what my dad did. Yeah. I was the homecoming king in my high school. I was top 10% of my, I mean, I could have gone to college easily and done whatever I wanted to, but I joined the Army. Yeah. So how long were you in the Army, you said the first time? The first time, yeah. I was in the Army for seven years, five months, and 30 days, I think, exactly. I got asked to leave the army the first time. Why? Because I was a fool. <clears throat> so let's back up a little bit. Yeah. So I joined the army in 1988. I graduated in 89. I went to basic training in August of 89. I dated the same girl in high school uh, from like my second semester of my sophomore year all the way till I graduated. Joined the army. I go off to Fort Benning, do my basic training. And I go to Fort Lewis. And I get orders to go to Panama. I was stationed in Panama for a year. Well, I was oof, 19 when I got married the first time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was 19. Go to Panama for a year, which was just after, I call it just because, but the actual thing was just cause, getting rid of Noriega, all that kind of fun stuff, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I'm down there, and before I leave, we get married. You know, I'm 19 years old. She's almost 20 so we're yeah young, young dung kids yeah really I come back from there i go to fort campbell kentucky 101st airborne division it's tough with the military because yeah we're home but we're still gone at times mm -hmm. i mean training things going to all these training events like in fort polk louisiana or back then jrtc was held at fort chaffee arkansas where you're gone for a month, month and a half, and you know all these things out in the field and all this other crazy stuff. And then uh, I did a summer at West Point where we trained cadets. It was funny, I had to give a class on the road march. I couldn't actually take them on a road march. I had to teach them about road marching. It was interesting. Yeah. But I just taught like some history stuff about Patton and the <clears throat> Bow the Bulge and all this kind of stuff. and. Then I got orders to Korea. While I was at at West Point training cadets, I was not a good husband. Mm. Just leave it at that. Yeah. I mean, people can probably infer yeah. what happened. Um, yeah. I was drinking. Uh, you know, I was just not a good dude. I get orders for, for Korea. My girlfriend, my wife at the time, was like, she found out about it. One of my battle buddies had told her what I had done. Uh, yeah, it was, you know, one of those things you, that happens. Yeah. You know, I didn't know Jesus at the time. Yeah. So, I mean, what else am I going to do? I mean, 
I'm drinking, smoking, partying. Yeah. You know, it happens. Yeah. I go to Korea and I come home from mid-tour leave and my father-in-law at the time serves me my divorce papers on my birthday. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. We had a son who was born at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Uh, he was oof, almost two at the time when it happened, when mm-hmm. I got served papers. And then I go to Fort Drum, New York. And yeah, that's when I got asked to leave the army after a few years. Was it because of the cheating or was it? No, it was because of something else. So in the mid 90s, the army had an issue with gangs. I'll I'll call them gangs. Yeah. There were black gangs or Mexican gangs and there was white gangs. There was skinheads. Yeah. And during my time at, at, uh, in Korea, so what happened too was at Fort Campbell, my platoon sergeant, my command sergeant major, and my squad leader were part of an organization that takes care of their own, no matter what happens. My squad leader had beat his wife with a baseball bat, and nothing happened to him. They put him in the barracks because of this organization. I don't know if I should say it or not. No, go for it. Uh, Go for it. There's four letter and there's three letter Masons. In the military, there's a very strong, with African-American community, they're strong Mason community within the military. Um, So my squad leader, platoon sergeant, and sergeant major were all Masons. So they have to take care of each other. Yeah. So that's what happened. Yeah. So that kind of put a bad taste in my mouth um, so that happened. I was like, what the heck is going? This is ridiculous. And I didn't grow up that way. I mean, my mom's a school teacher. My high school was in the barrio. Yeah. Like I grew up around all kinds. Of, I mean, white folks in my high school were the minority. Yeah. I mean, there was Vietnamese and Hispanics. No big deal. Yeah. But then in the military, we had these cliques. This is in the 90s. I don't think it's the same way anymore. So had these cliques and... I go to Korea and certain guys in other units were in Korea as well that, that come from sp- special units within the military that there was a kind of a culture within the military. Mm-hmm. I was hurting, didn't know Jesus. I was drinking a lot. Uh, I was doing a bunch of dumb stuff and I just got sucked into it. Into white nationalism, white supremacy. Yeah. One of my soldiers was actually a war skin when he was a civilian. And he was told either, he spent time in and out of uh, CYA, California Youth Authority, which is the youth prison system in California. Yeah. And they said, hey, you join the army or you go Airborne Ranger. And he joined, went Airborne Ranger. And I mean, I don't want people to think that the military is all like that, because it's not. I was just hurting. I was going through divorce. I was like literally drunk all the time. We would go out every night and drink. Um, we would take ephedrine. You ever yeah. remember ephedrine? Yeah, I remember. Yeah. So we would, I would take 20 or 30 of those things a night. Oh my gosh. Right. So I could drink all night long and not worry about it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. 
Oh, yeah. I was like a speed freak, basically. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, a lot of the guys in Korea, the time was real easy to get steroids. So these guys actually tricked me one, one day and gave me steroids without me knowing it. That way, because they thought I, I was an outsider. Yeah. <clears throat> so they got me some steroids just in case I popped hot. I couldn't narc on them. Yeah. And I was actually the UPL guy. I was the one who would administer your analysis. So I knew who to test, not to test um, for certain things. I would give the shots in their butt cheeks Yeah, for steroids. It was rampant. We were meatheads. We would drink, we'd do steroids, and we'd go to the gym. We were the, the biggest dudes in Korea, and we didn't care. We got in numerous fights. I remember one night in a town called Dongtushan, or TDC as people call it. <clears throat> this guy started talking smack to one of my friends. Unbeknownst to him, we were behind him. Yeah. He pushed my friend, and all hell broke loose. Yeah. Throwing chairs, bottles, everything. It was bad. Like, I'm dragging buddies back to the barracks who were bleeding from their head and all. Yeah, it was bad. And for a while, we had to, like, we went down a range in packs just to make sure we had to care of each other. Yeah, so then I go to Fort, after Korea, I go to Fort Drum. And uh, it was interesting. I uh, would wear my boots and braces to the PX. And I remember one day, this officer walked up to me. He goes, what's up, boot boy? And I was taking back a second. I was like, oh, I've heard about you. I know who you are. He was an officer in the United States military who was a skinhead. Yeah, so I'd hang out with him. And it was kind of funny because I look at back at it now. It really wasn't. I was just hurting. Like, and I, I talked to chaplains about what was going on. Not once did the chaplain ever ask me if I knew Jesus. <laughs> Not once. Nobody really cared because I, I was good at my job. I was a good leader, you know, and yeah, nobody really cared. And then one day I got, uh, I was invited, I guess that's a good word to use, to go see the gang unit at Fort Drums, like military police. Yeah. They thought I was literally the head skinhead of the Fort Drum area. They thought I was the leader. And... I actually almost became the leader of a national organization up in Fort Drum. What kept you from doing that? Just circumstances didn't work out properly. Yeah. What was interesting too was one of the guys in my unit, his, I think it was his father was part of HA, Hells Angels. Yeah. And they were looking to move some meth up in the area. Yeah. They wanted me to move the meth for him. And it just never panned out. It was weird. But like that, I mean, I was drinking. I got introduced to LSD at the time because LSD, you can't, under your analysis, you don't pop hot. Yeah. You have to pull hair, or you actually have to be tripping as you take the urinalysis. So I mean, I, I was just literally drunk every night. I go to the bars, they knew me as the Jaeger man. I wore a Jaeger Master hat. And that's why I drank a lot, because it was German. It was like, you know, that's what I wanted to be like. 
like the Nazis. I want to, I'm going to drink German stuff. I thought. So this is something that I've always just wondered about that culture. And I've heard other people describe that have come out that it's not so much the ideology that draws them in. It's the camaraderie. It's the brotherhood. Exactly. It's, you are exactly it's, it's, 100% it's, correct. It's the group. It for sure is. 100% correct. It's weird. And what's funny too is, you know, I'm, I'm a white guy. I'm not in a gang. I'm white. I'm too good for that. Only African-Americans and Hispanics are in gangs. Whites aren't in gangs because we're white. You know, and I look back and I'm like, what a flipping idiot I was. And it really was about the camaraderie. And I'm sure listeners have probably watched the movie um, American History X, right? Edward Norton, one, one yeah. of my favorite movies. It's a good movie. It's a really good movie. And then I watched a recent one called Skin on Amazon. It's a true story about this guy. I think name's Brian Winder, um, who actually left. And he had all these facial tattoos um, that got removed. I think actually the SPLC actually helped sponsor him to get his tattoos removed. Yeah. And he got removed because he became a believer. Like, I saw this little interview on CBN. Yeah. Yeah, it was fantastic. I was like, I dig this guy. Yeah, so I was an idiot. What actually got me, they told me to leave the, asked, the my officers asked me to leave the army. What happened was actually a friend of mine and another friend, we were downtown Alexandria Bay, New York, one of our friends was ETS, getting out of the military. So we were partying. Well, on the way up, I brought a case of beer in my car and we drank it. And then the guy leaving the military found, hooked up with a girl at night. Me and the other guy were bored, sitting in this house with all these college kids and he's off with this girl. So we started rummaging around the house, found a bottle of vodka, started drinking that, went outside, and we found an unlocked car. And I snagged the radar detector. I was blitzed. I was hammered. I don't know what happened exactly. <clears throat> I took this detector. And then the guys that was, this girl was with, they're all college students from Syracuse University. I'm like, oh, man, they're all in my car. And we started running. <laughs> took off. Yeah. We get to my truck. And the guy leaving the Army was getting a little altercation with our other friend because we ruined his night with this girl. And I'm like, hey dudes, there's two cops. Get in the truck, let's go. There's two cops, let's go. Well, they light us up and um, I blow on the breathalyzer and I blow a .07. Woo, New York is .08, I was yeah. good. Yeah, I had sobered up enough they said, hey, Jason, park it and walk. I said, yes, sir, I will. Parked my truck. We started walking the same direction we just ran from. This car, like, like oh, there they are. They get out. I don't remember it. I remember the cops coming again, lighting us up. And I just take off running, run across the street. I'm like, forget this. I'm not going to jail. Well, the guy leaving the army stayed there. I was like, well, I can't let him go down for this. 
he's getting out of the army. I'm not going to let him. He's leaving the army. I'm, I will take full blame for everything. So I go back. I tell the cops, yep, I took the detector. I did everything. And I think we got in a fight. I don't remember. I just remember the next day he had a fat lip. That's yeah. all I remember. So I get arrested for uh, petty larceny. I go to the jail. They take my belt. They take my shoestrings. A Bay is a really, really small jail cell. I remember I took like a, I had this mimeograph paper with my number and my booking stuff, you know, and they take out this little 35 millimeter camera back in the old school days, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Take my picture and I'm like, oh, I'm screwed. My squad leader comes to pick me up. I get taken back down to Fort Drum. And then that's when they said, hey, Jason, we have this counseling statement from your platoon leader who says you're a skinhead. Let's just leave the army. We'll keep you full benefits. Because I had re-enlisted before, so i like, yep, I'll leave the army. So I'm up upstate New York. I get asked to leave the army. I get honorably discharged, luckily, thankfully. And I live in upstate New York for a few more months. I actually got a job at a group home for delinquents. I'm not probably not the best guy to give them this, to have this job because I'm working with kids. But I remember, I, I, I mean, there's this one kid that I actually influenced a little bit. He was like 16, 17 years old, and he would hold his fork like a shovel, like, because these are all wards of the state kind of kids, you know, and they'd yeah. never been, had a good father figure. I said, hey, man, you're at that age where you're going to meet this girl's dad. Hold your fork the proper way. Yeah. You know, he started doing it. And then I was still drinking, drugging, hiding all that stuff from my employer I mean I, one night I went to New York City and uh, I was helping somebody move from New York City up to Fort Drum area and uh, I think I, I did we found crack first we thought it was she thought it was cocaine so we smoked a joint with crack in it she's like oh no this isn't cocaine this is crack so then we found some cocaine and made what's called a cocoa puff it's a joint laced with cocaine. Yeah. Did that. And then we found something I knew I could ever, ever, ever do again. Heroin. I snorted a dime bag of heroin that night too as well. So in one night I did crack, cocaine, and heroin in one night. Wow. Yeah. All while you're working this job with delinquent youth. Yes. Yeah, I was such a hypocrite. Such a hypocrite. So you said you were there for just a few months. Yep. Uh, so I, I moved back to California. My dad got sick really bad. Um, and I knew, like, I knew I was going to end up in prison. Because I've done some other things, too. Like, copper pipe could get you a lot of money. Uh, you could just yeah. take it and cycle it and make a lot of money. So I did that a few times with some friends of mine. And, like, we, like took a lot of copper pipe. Yeah. Probably ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars worth of copper pipe. Wow. Oh yeah. We had this whole thing, yeah, it was a whole we did a a great op order, like military plan to do this. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah, so then I go back to California, I 
And I was like, you know, I just got to go to college. I got to get my life on track. So I go back home. I, take, I took a train from Syracuse, New York to San Bernardino, California. And like, I barely had money to eat. Yeah, it was just, it was, I just need to get home. And yeah. I get home, I go to college. And the interesting thing is, so growing up, you know, I decided to play soccer. So I saw this, this summer PE class, soccer. I'm going to go play soccer. That's the easy PE credit. And, uh, you know, Southern California, it gets kind of warm sometimes. So we take our shirts off to, for practice. What it ended up being was that class was actually tryouts for the junior college soccer team. Yeah. And I was drinking. I was smoking like two packs of cigarettes a day. Like, I was like, oh, my God, this is horrible. Yeah. Because, I mean, people don't know, soccer players run average five miles a game. A lot. Right. Yeah. So this is, oh, my, it was horrible. I'm hacking up a lung and all this kind of stuff. And what was interesting was what most people don't know is there's actually three types of skinheads. There's what they call traditionals. There's Nazis. And then there's what they call sharps. Sharps stands for skinheads against racial prejudice. They are probably just as violent as the Nazis. Okay, so skinheads against racial prejudice. Racial prejudice. Yes. Okay, so traditionally skinheads started in England in the mid to late 60s. So the skinhead uniform, using air quotes here, yeah. they were factory workers. So they wore jeans, they wore boots, they wore t-shirts, and they wore suspenders or what we call braces to keep their pants up. And they had short hair because they worked in factories. They didn't want things getting caught yeah. in the machinery, right? So a traditional skinhead is somebody who's a working class person, right? They drink beer, they work, they have fun, all right? Nazis took over the, well, I don't know what you call it. Co-opted the movement, yeah, if they you will. That's a good, yeah, good word. Yeah, yeah. They co-opted the movement. And then Sharps co-opted that to say, hey, look, there's, there are skinheads who, who are anti-racial, and they're just as violent as the whole Nazis are. Yeah. It's crazy. So one day though, I'm at soccer practice and there's this African-American traditional skinhead who sees a tattoo on my back. He made a comment. I said, we're good, man. We're on, we're on the pitch. We're good. The tattoo is something I don't want to show people. It's an album from a, an old band that was like the, if you will, the Elvis Presley, the king of the skinhead music yeah. industry back in the day. Yeah, so it's on my back. I don't take my shirt off because, it, but he saw it because we're running around. It's hot yeah. in Southern California. I yeah. take my shirt off. And I, I said, hey, man, we're, we're fine. We're good. Yeah. Because I, I don't think really looking back at it, I mean, some of my soldiers were African-American, Hispanic. I didn't treat them differently. I just got sucked up in this movement. I mean, it wasn't... It wasn't something you bought the ideology you... No, because I, I was never anti-government. I was never, let's go wipe out the Jews. Let's go wipe out African-Americans. I was never like that. I was like, hey, let's just, let's be smart and be educated and get... Let's not be what I would call white trash. Let's good jobs. Let's go get an education. You know, let's just be good citizens yeah you know that makes sense yeah um 
But I, I mean, I wore my white laces. I wore my Doc Martens with steel cap boots. I wore jeans with braces. I mean, they did an inspection on my room at Fort Drum and I had uh, Mein Kampf in my books yeah. openly. I actually had a flag, the old South African flag before apartheid. Yeah. Like the apartheid flag, I had that in my room. Yeah, I was, and literally they thought at Fort Drum I was the, the lead skinhead of that region because I knew everybody. Yeah. It's not hard to find a skinhead. Yeah. I mean, we all look the same. It's, it's easy. Yeah. So when did that start to get out of that? When... <laughs> so as I'm going to college back in California, I get another job at a group home for kids because I did it before. I was like, I could do this again. Right. So I'm working night shift at this group home in Southern California. It was a group home for kids who were sexual offenders. It was interesting. I drive in one night and there's this girl working who I'd never met. I pull in the driveway and I see this new car in the driveway. I'm like, who's this? And the license plate was Corey and it had a number nine. I was like, who's this guy? I walk in and it's this girl in overalls. I'm like, oh, she's kind of cute. She probably smokes dope. Looks kind of hippie-ish. I'm like, all right, cool. I can dig this chick. And she worked days. She worked, I worked nights. We couldn't really interact in front of the boys because of what they were in there for. So I, I worked weekend nights. She worked weekend days. Uh, Monday mornings, we'd have meetings, like team meetings. And I was like, this girl's cute. I want to know her, right? I, I, of course, I've been divorced by then. I got divorced uh, in 94, 95, something like that. And I didn't really care. I mean, it, I was bad. It was really bad. So we meet this girl, started chatting. I couldn't talk to her, so I wrote her letters at night. Because that's what I could do. That's how we yeah. communicated. We went out on our first date. And uh, we went to this biker bar in Yucaipa, California. And I, I met this kid in my English class. I said, hey man, he, he knew my background a little bit. I said, hey man, I got this date. Can you and your girlfriend come with me just to be safe so I don't, I haven't done this in a long time, like really care for somebody. Like, so we go on this date and we're playing pool, whatever. Have more dates and come to find out she does like to smoke weed, which I didn't mind at the time either. We go camping to uh, Joshua Tree, which is a great place if anyone's ever been. And we get pregnant. Yeah, uh, that was October of 1997. We had met really in August of 97. So now I'm like, oh crap, I have this girl who's pregnant. I have a son from my first marriage who I'm not taking care of because I had no money. How can I take care of this other baby? So I was like, I had nothing, didn't want anything to do with her. Not one thing. Well, my parents, I was, and it was sad too. I was like 26, 27, kicked out of the army basically. 
living back with my parents, I mean, I'm feeling like small, like no value at all to my life. And my parents find out, my parents bring her into the house, probably in late December, early, early January, 97, 98. Where's your ex-wife and son at the time? They are living, oof, Northern California. Did you have any relationship with your son? None. None at all. And there's redemption to that too. So my ex-wife remarried immediately after my alimony stopped. Like immediately. So I grew up in a home with a, a half-sister who had parents who were divorced. And I saw those issues. So my thought was my son has a mom and dad, has one mom, one dad. I'm gonna let that be because I think it's better for him growing up. Mm -hmm. I don't have these issues about spending weekends with yeah. me and weekends with her, you know. And I was a fool. I mean, I was in no shape to take care of, a, to raise a son. Yeah. Alcoholic, drugs, yeah. white supremacist. I mean, there was just, I knew it was better for him yeah. to be away from me. So then, my pregnant girlfriend, air quotes, is in my house with my parents. And one day, she gets a call from her mom in Illinois. This is where it gets starts getting good. And we figured, so we were gonna move her back to Illinois, where she's from. That's where her family's at. They yeah. can help take care of her yeah. baby, all that kind of stuff. Well, her mom wanted to talk to me on the phone. This is January 1998. She goes, I want to talk to Jason. So I go back to my room. We're on the phone. She wants to know what my plans are for her daughter and what am I, I'm going to do. I flat out lied to her. I said, I'm going to take her back to Illinois. I'm going to get a job and do all this kind of stuff. Knowing in my head, I'm thinking, I'm going to drop her off. I'm going to come back to California and get my life right. My wife grew up in a Christian home, and I have, you guys probably know this, like, we have these grandmothers who pray for us, yeah. but you cannot run those prayers, right? So my dad actually grew up in an AG home. My grandfather was an AG evangelist and pastor who actually had walked away from the ministry, actually left my grandmother, married a younger woman, but my grandmother never lost her faith. Mm. She prayed for me every day for 27 years, mm. every day. And so my wife's mother calls me. I mean, we get married eventually, right? My wife, my mother calls me, I'm in my room and I'm just, I mean, I'm lost. I'm like, I have no clue yeah. what's on going on in my life. I'm just, I'm a drunk, I'm smoking, I'm smoking weed at the time. I don't really care. I actually wanted my, I didn't care if my wife would have gotten an abortion. I wouldn't have cared. Mm. So we're on the phone talking. Like she's in Illinois, I'm in California, on the phone. I don't remember what was said exactly. I don't remember saying a prayer, anything. I remember crying. Crying like I've never cried before in my life. Like, my eyes were like swollen shut crying, like yeah. 
I mean, it was weird. I was like, what is going on here? She goes, you're fine. You just gave your heart to the Lord. I had no clue what that meant. I didn't, I didn't grow up going to church. None of that. I'm like, what? So I, I walk out of my room. I go to my wife. I said, at the girlfriend at the time, I said, hey, your mom wants to talk to you. And she sees I've been like, I mean, she could tell I've been crying because my eyes were just bloodshot, swollen. Yeah. She's like, she gets on the phone to mom. She goes, mom, what just happened? She goes, he gave his heart to the Lord. She's like, what? And so the next day I was like, and I, I'm still wearing like, and I don't like using the term anymore, but wife beater tank tops. Yeah. You know I'm talking about? Yeah. I had like six earrings, a big fat goatee, like sideburns. I mean, I still looked like a skin in a way. Right. And I've been pulled over before I've been profiled. Like, I remember one time I was going to class. I was in my mom's car. I was at a stoplight. The light turns green. I make a left-hand turn. Windows are down. Music's probably kind of loud, right? I'm driving down, and this cop pulls a Yui. I'm like, oh, man, I didn't do anything. What are you doing, dude? He lights me up. <clears throat> and I'm sitting there like, all right. I pull over, and my mom's windows are tinted. He goes, let me see your hands. I stick my hands out the window. He walks up to me. He goes, whose car is this? I said, it's my mom's. He goes, you know, she, did she know you have it? Yeah, man, I'm on my way to class at RCC. He's like, you sure? Yeah. Has you ever been arrested? I lied. I said no. Because my petty larceny charge got dropped to uh, disorderly conduct because I was on to court all the time. I wore a shirt and tie. Yes, sir, no, sir, all this kind of stuff. And yeah. they just dropped it to yeah. pay larceny or sweaty conduct, which is like a misdemeanor, like a tax yeah. ticket. So I had no record. So I knew I wasn't really, really lying. I was like, oh. I'm thinking to myself, you pulled me over because the way I looked. I get it. So fast forward to January 98. And um, I said, I got to tell my grandmother what had happened to me. So I drive two hours to Bakersfield, California. I look the same. I mean, still got the bald head, sideburns, fat goatee, earrings. I knock on the door. She answers. I said, Grandma, I got something to tell you. She goes, I can already tell. I see it in your eyes. <laughs> I still really had no clue what had happened to me. Yeah. No clue. So we moved back to Illinois, and um, I'm still thinking the same things. Because like I said, I, had no, I was still smoking, drinking. I no clue what happened to me. Small farm town, Illinois, where everybody knows your name and everybody knows your business. Yeah. So they all knew I was this outsider California guy who got one of their own pregnant. We go to church like that first Sunday. It was crazy because it felt like the pastor was speaking to me. Nobody else. He was talking to me. I was like, whoa, this is weird. There was this guy in the worship team who was singing to me. Nobody else but to me. I was like, well, this is odd. And then after service, all these guys would come up and they gave me hugs. I was like, what is this? Dudes don't hug. Yeah. We don't do that. Yeah. We're manly. We don't cry. We don't hug. We don't 
do that stuff. It was crazy. And then I, I go to the pastor one day. I said, how do you, he goes, how do you believe the Bible? He goes, you never read the Bible? I said, no, man, I, no. He said, you ever been to church? I said, as a kid, we'd go to like family reunion church and I, I sat in Sunday school and would draw pictures or whatever. I, no, but no, yeah. right? Yeah. He goes, all right. He goes, read your Bible. And then he gave me evidence of the demands of a, a verdict, volume one. He says, read that and read your Bible. I said, okay. So I'm reading both books and I'm like, oh. So the Bible, as, you know, as Steve talked in his podcast, it's historically correct. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God, this is really real. So I'm, I'm getting it. I'm like, wow, this is fantastic. And then, you know, like I said, I was smoking, drinking a lot. I said, God, if you don't want me to smoke or drink, then take it from me. So literally, I did not drink or smoke for over five years. And I had no urge to do it. There was no That's withdrawals. Cool. There was nothing. That's cool. There was nothing. And then I go to the pastor. This is March of 98. So I got saved, I guess I'd say like late January, early February 98. We moved to Illinois. I meet the pastor. All these guys are like hugging on me. I'm like, this is weird. And like, I'm crying every service. Cry, like bawling, crying every service. I really have no clue what's going on. I mean, I'm such a baby Christian. I'm like, what is going on here? And then March 98, I prayed to God. I said, hey, God, if you want me, I need the love to marry this woman. It has to come from you. I don't have it. It has to come from you. Mm. I need to do the right thing. Take care of this woman who's carrying my baby. I need to take care of this baby. And it just, it just happened. Yeah. It's crazy. This thing called prayer actually works. You know, it's, <laughs> I know. It's funny. So I go to the pastor one day. I said, hey, pastor. Bible says then you get baptized. And you get baptized. And they didn't, I don't think they've done a baptism service in maybe years. I don't know. Yeah. And I said, I need to get married. He's like, we can do that. And by then, I had become the janitor of the church. Let me back up a little bit more first. So I got a job at a Dillard's in the men's department. And I carried around a little New Testament pocket Bible I always carried in my suit jacket. And it was a really dead store. Like, so I could just read my Bible like all the time. Just reading, reading, reading. And luckily, my manager and another coworker were believers and they gave me so much grace. They, they knew I was such a baby believer that they were just always there for me, no matter what. Yeah. And uh, I had two African-American gentlemen working there. I read one day, hey, you should love your enemies. Something that Jesus taught, right? Yeah. So I go to these guys and say, hey man, the Bible tells me I should love my enemies. And I kind of went through a quick story of my background, how I used to be a white supremacist. I said, will you forgive me? And they're like flabbergasted. Like, what is this? What's going on here? Right. And they said, we forgive you. <laughs> wow. And immediately I felt this weight lifted off of me. Oh, 
just like, all right, God, I, you know, just this weight was just gone. It was incredible. And then so I'm working for Dillard's and this other lady says like, I don't think I deserve God's grace. And the, a lot of them knew that I was just like this baby believer, like, and I'm an all or nothing type of a person. Yeah. So, I mean, they knew I was like all in. And this lady said to me, I don't think I deserve God's grace. I was like, man, I don't know. There's this guy, Paul in the Bible who like killed Christians. You know, if he can get God's grace, you can. I didn't know what to say to her. I, I, yeah. I mean, I was, yeah. like I said, I was a baby believer, yeah. like a month or two old. And uh, I go to church the next day and I'm in this like new believers class and we're going through scriptures and all this kind of stuff. And I was at Romans eight. I, I don't memorize the Bible very well. It's Romans eight where it talks about, we're not condemned and all this stuff. And he foreknew all. I was like, okay, that's something I can tell this woman. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, so I was like, okay, cool. I got something I can tell her. And then I tell this, this one of his brothers who's been hugging on me. Like I thought was weird. I'm kind of used to it by now. <laughs> I tell him what happens to me and he quotes the same scripture to me. I was like, that's kind of weird. I'm, I'm kind of taking it back. I know that like God does things in threes, right? That's like three is a magical number. I mean, it's the Trinity, right? So I'm like, this is really weird. But I, I'm, something's going on. And, we, and that Sunday we had this guest speaker at church. It was from ICI University, which back then was the Assemblies of God correspondence courses. They translate all the courses in different languages it's around the world. He was a guest speaker. I'm sitting in the same pew that our family always sits in. It's like the fourth pew back, you know, it's the yeah. same spot because it's the one that we paid for. I'm sitting there. He turns the service over to pastor. And I'm like, what is going on here? Pastor's like, something's going on. Some, God's dealing with some people right now. And I can feel my heart, like, feel like it's getting squished and pressed and just squeezed. Does that make sense? Yeah. And the pastor turns into a salvation message. I was like, oh, I'm already saved. I'm good. All right. And he was in front of me. He said that. And he walks to the other side of the stage. He goes, no, that's not it. God's calling something to ministry. And I went, oh, like, this, this thinking, I was like, oh my God, what is that? And he goes, that's you stand up. And I stood up. Yeah. And I'd been a Christian maybe four months. You know, and I had talked previously to the pastor, like, I'd felt like this, really, this urge. I'm like, but God, look at, I'm like, pastor, look at me. I'm like, I was a skinhead. I did drugs. I'm an alcoholic. All these tattoos I have, I don't, look Christian. Yeah. I don't fit the Christian mold. He goes, he goes, man, look at me. I'm in a suit and tie. I can't go places you can go to because of the way you look, you know, things that I don't know. You're okay. I'm like, all right, whatever. I don't, it's kind of weird. I got, went to the pastor, said, I need to get baptized and you get married. He's like, we can do that. We were married on Good Friday. We were both baptized on Easter Sunday. <laughs> yeah, it was nuts. 
And then we went to this revival service. So AG, um, you know, we believe full gospel. We went to the revival service and we had this Australian speaker there, right? So we get in the prayer line afterwards and I'm like, I've watched TBN. I'm like, yeah, that stuff's not real. That whole laying hands on people and falling out, that's not real. So I'm in line. And my brother-in-law tells the guys, you know, he's right next to me. He goes, hey, he doesn't believe in this stuff. He's like, all right, that's okay. So he prays for me, lays his hand on my head. I look up and I'm at the bottom of, I see the bottom of the pew. I'm like, what in the heck? Like I said, I'm an all nothing person. Like God, like, bam. Yeah. And I get up, I'm like, what in the heck? Well, what in the hell just happened here? Yeah. And the guy prays for me again. And this time he snaps to show that he didn't push me. Yeah. The same thing, like the catchers were there, right? Yeah. But it was so violent, they couldn't catch me. Hmm. They couldn't react fast enough because it happened so fast. And I'm like, I get up, I'm like, what is going on here? And I'm stumbling around drunk because I know what that's like because I've been there, done that, got multiple t-shirts to show that. And I tell the guy, yeah, dude. He goes, you like this, don't you? I was like, yeah, man. I just got baptized like two weeks ago. I just got married two weeks ago. He goes, you want another drink? Yeah. He does it. He snaps again. I'm out for like 10 minutes, like out. Yeah. I finally, he goes through the whole line. I, I get up. I'm like, what is going on here? Right. And then I, I find the pastor of the church. I said, Hey pastor, the Bible says that I can speak in tongues. Yeah. I go, I want that. He goes, okay, we can do that. He goes, raise your hands. All right, cool. I'm, I'm down for it, man. I want it. If God's got it for me, I want it. I don't care. He prays for me. I'm out again, like 10 minutes. And I literally felt the Holy Spirit enter my body. Mm. Like through my toes, up my legs, through my torso, through my arms, up to my, I felt it. Like I felt something enter my body. Luckily I had a, a dear brother who, there's a tendency sometimes in certain denominations to force certain things on people. Mm -hmm. And this, luckily I had this guy who's like, hey, leave him alone. He's fine. Just go away. He's fine. I remember getting in the car. And so music is a big thing for me too, as well. You know, as a non-believer, I was listening to a bunch of bad stuff. And luckily in, there were Christian bands who were my style of music, like the Supertones, the Insiders, POD, Blindside, all this kind of stuff was I was like, oh, wow, there's actually real good. There's actually good music I can listen to still. And so on the way home, we were listening to, uh, I had this album from the Insiders called Scalaluya. Mm -hmm. It was hymns set to ska type music. I had that one. It was a great album. I still have them on my Spotify, right? And uh, it was crazy. My wife, sister-in-law, and brother-in-law, they were all asleep. And I'm singing this, I forget what song it was, but like, this word came out like I was like, it was like this one little syllable, you know, that yeah. I was like, Oh, I got it. You know, it was just that moment. I was just like, 
all right, I've got the Holy Spirit. Yeah. You know, it was just crazy. And then, like I said, I was a janitor for the church. And like, I'm, I'm, I was kind of dumb at times because the pastors need help with something, I would do it. So one Sunday or Sunday night, one of the, the pastor, one of the elders was up front talking and I was getting ready to start breaking things down and clean up. And the elder goes, he can do it. Sure, I'll, I'll do it. Not knowing what I needed to do. I, yeah, I'll do it. Pastor goes, I'm going to be gone this Wednesday. I need you to speak. <laughs> I was like, what? You say what? So I gave my first sermon when I was six months old. In the faith. Six, yep. And it was horrible. Still have it on tape, but it was horrible. It was interesting, too, as I told you, my grandfather was an AG pastor and evangelist. Well, I, I have his sermon notes. I had no clue what to do, what to say. You know, and I've taught classes in the military prior to that. You know, I, I taught the commandant of West Point my road march class. I, I had to. I had to get his blessing and approval to say, yeah, I can teach you some of my cadets. So I've spoken in front of people before. It's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. But now I was like, oh, crap. People live and die by what I say. Man, I was stressed. So stressed. So I just like, I basically just read a bunch of scriptures and what my grandfather had done, right? And after I was done, I sat in the front pew and I just wept. And I had guys who had been Christians for 30, 40, 50, 60 years come to me. And they knew my whole story. I mean, like I said, it was a small farm town. Everybody knows everybody's business. I was this outsider. They all knew who I was. Mm -hmm. And this guy, Lonnie Cochran, he was probably 80 years old. He came up to me and just gave me a big old hug. He says, Jason, I've been a believer. No, I've known the Lord for 60 plus years. I could never do what you just did. I'm so proud of you. Yeah, it was, yeah, it's pretty cool. So you're married. Yep. You got a kid coming or? Oh, she was born in June. Okay. How'd you get back into the army? (laughs) So I was working as a veterans rep in Springfield, Missouri, trying to help vets find jobs and whatnot. Yeah. This is post 9-11. I actually got a cool story about 9-11. So I was, uh, I was going to church in Springfield, Missouri, and I was hosting a free skate night at the North Skate Park for all the skater kids, right? On September 10th, which was a Monday. Mm-hmm. I go to a local Christian bookstore and said, hey, this is what I'm doing. Do you got anything I could buy? That'd be great for these kids, right? I said, yeah, come on back into the back store, back of the shop. There was an album that had not been released yet that was being released September 11th, 2001. P.O.D. Correct. So that's why P.O.D. is like, has a huge place in my heart. So I actually played P.O.D.'s album, Satellite, the night before 9-11. And I've seen P.O.D. three or four times. I've actually prayed with Sonny on a street corner. Sonny's a great dude. I love him. Love that dude. He's awesome. His actual name is Paul. Yeah. So they, they opened for a band called The Urge in Springfield, Missouri. And we couldn't afford to get into 
tickets for him. So we were playing hacky sack outside because we could hear him. And then I saw their tour bus walking up to the show. I was like, I've got to go meet these guys because of their music. And they just mean a lot to me because of where I came from. And they're SoCal guys and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But so I walked back where the bus is at. Bus is gone. I'm like, dang it, I missed them. So I put my head down. I walked back to where we were playing hacky sack. And lo and behold, that was the loadout door we were sitting by. Yeah. I actually helped POD load their tour bus. And I got to tell Sonny my story prayed with him and that was just before or just after he had taped his show with um bill maher mm -hmm. i remember that one on because uh, bill maher was, was politi joking. politically incorrect yes yeah, because bill maher like, was asking him how did you come to faith did your mom die or something yep and sonny actually got to share about how his mom had cancer and had died and yep yeah it was just before just after that taping so yeah sonny's an awesome dude so yeah i got to play satellite the night before it was released so POD is like, it's my band. So my favorite POD story, I remember in Heaven's Metal Magazine at the time, it's probably 1993, there was an, this little write-up about this new band that was fusing rap with metal. Yeah. And, and so I mail-ordered Snuff the Punk. Oh, it's a great album. But my favorite story is right after Columbine. Mm -hmm. POD had wrapped up their tour and they were on their way back to Southern California and they decided to play at the small church in Littleton as almost oh, like, a, almost, that. almost like a little benefit show. So it was them blindside and another band. I don't remember who five iron maybe. No, it wasn't five. Iron. Okay. Playing at this small church. It was kind of just an impromptu little thing. Very few people knew about it. And I show up and I had a connection a friend of mine here in Colorado Springs who was going to school to learn to be an audio engineer in Southern California. And he got to his cousin or uncle worked closely with POD's label. And so they got this little demo tape that he ripped off a copy of me off of with like four or five songs off of what was then released as fundamental elements of South oh, town. That's a, oh, that's a good album. And so I played that thing in my car over and over and over. And so they're playing the show before Fundamental Elements come out and they play a couple songs off of there and I'm singing it with them. And they're like, how does this dude in Colorado know, <laughs> right. know this song? And yeah. so, yeah, it's, yeah, those were some magical years with the yeah. music that was going on in the late 90s, mid 90s. POD, Five Iron, Insiders, OC Supertones. And what's great about Supertones is the lead singer is kind of a traditional skinhead in a way. Because Orange County back in the day was like a hotbed for Nazi skinhead movement. Yeah. Hotbed. So you asked about how I got back in the army. So I was a veterans rep trying to help guys get a job in the military. This is post 9-11. And I remember when we invaded Iraq, I was working at a cabinet shop so I used to install church furniture and pews and whatnot and been around the country doing all this kind of stuff. I was in the shop and we invaded Iraq and I got physically sick. I felt like those are my guys. I wasn't there. If you remember, there was uh, an incident before the invasion where a service member threw a hand grenade into a tent. Mm -hmm. That was my old unit. Yeah, that was my old unit. I didn't know any of the guys, but that was my old unit. So I felt... I just felt sick to my stomach when I heard that. We invaded Iraq. I physically got ill and had to leave work because I knew 
guys were going to die and I wasn't there. So I got, I left that job. I became uh, a vet rep and I was talking to all these guys trying to find work. And we just, just, I had that instant camaraderie again with these guys. We're just, I didn't really help them find a job. We were just telling stories about military back when I was in, when they were in kind of stuff. So I knew all the recruiters in town and the army was looking for prior service guys. And I knew based off of my discharge before I needed to get a waiver to get back in. Mm-hmm. I talked to my wife about it. And by then we had three kids. And I'm like, this is a better life, I think, because of the benefits. Like pay was going to be okay, but I knew I could support medical benefits, dental benefits, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, so I go to the recruiters. Said, hey man, I want to get back in the army. I said, okay. Their commander had to write a letter for me because my RE code was not to snuff. It was great. And I had to lose like 20 pounds, 25 pounds because, yeah, I stopped running because I'm like, why run anymore? I don't need to. Yeah. <clears throat> I go to MEPS in Kansas City and uh, the uh, guy there says, and I'm still like 10 pounds overweight. Yeah. It's like, you're a prior service guy, right? I'm like, yeah. He goes, all right, you made weight. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so I get back in. And this was, uh, I actually go back in on my anniversary, April 10th, uh, 2006. And I had to go to uh, Fort Sill for some training. And then I went down to New Mexico for some training. I get back in and I end up at Fort Bragg, uh, A-Second Airborne Division. Because it was funny. What was funny was I go back in. I'm like, hey, I want to go infantry. I've got an EIB. I'm air assault qualified. I'm airborne qualified. The guy goes, you can't go infantry. I'm like, what? There's two wars. There's like two conflicts going on. Yeah. You need infantry guys. He goes, no, you can do. He gave me a list of three or four jobs. And I was like, all right, I'll be a Fort Observer because they work with infantry. So I end up at Fort Bragg. And this is where God really stepped in for me. Not they hadn't before, but so back in the '90s, Fort Bragg had a big issue with white supremacists and skinheads. There was actually a murder committed by a couple soldiers in Fort Bragg. Mm. So tattoos are a big thing. So they, I'm in processing Fort Bragg, and they pull the guys aside, and we take off our shirts to look for tattoos. And I'm like, oh God, help me! I'm praying, just Jesus, just yeah, just praying. And there was one of the guys who sees a tattoo on my chest. He's like, he's looking at me like all funny, like pulls out this tattoo book. He's looking, he's looking at me, looking, looking, and puts it away and walks away. I was like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Yeah. Because I have what's called a Celtic cross on my chest. But it's a hand-poked, like, barracks tattoo that looks like hot garbage. And I never got it filled in like a typical color cross is filled in. So it was just an outline. Mm-hmm. So he, it didn't match the book. So yeah, God was all over that. Like, it was interesting too was I had friends who say, hey man, go back again. Be, you got a degree. When I was out for 10 years, I got my degree in business administration. Go back in as an officer, do this, this, and this. I'm like, nah, man, I want to be an enlisted guy. I want to be with soldiers. Yeah. Because I know that I'll have more influence with soldiers because I'll be with them day to day. As an NCO, I'll be with them. I'll always, because again, I had a bad experience with chaplains. 
Not once did one ask me if I knew Jesus. I knew was, as an NCO, I would have daily interaction with soldiers. I could have that influence on them. Which would ultimately be your ministry. Correct. Which is what that, that tug on your heart. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, and I, I've never been a guy to think, like, I never thought, like, I'm going to be in a church to do yeah. ministry. My ministry is not, it's day-to-day type stuff, right? Yeah. So remember, I, I get to Fort Bragg. It's a brand new unit. We're all brand, like, I'm barely back in the Army. And my senior NCO says, hey, I need you to be the team chief for this platoon. I'm like, I'm an E4. That's an E6 job. I barely know my job is an E4. He goes, yeah, you used to be an NCO. I can't teach you to be an NCO, but I can teach you your job. I need you to lead soldiers. I'm like, okay, I can do that. Yeah. So like our first field problem, I get my guys together. I said, hey, guys, just so you know, I pray every day for you guys. I believe, you know, I'm, I follow Jesus. If you need anything, you can come to me as Jason, not Sergeant Burkett. And we'll talk man to man. And to this day, I still have great relationships with both those guys. Hmm. Like one of them actually called me the other day, you know, for Thanksgiving. Just we always do that kind of stuff. And then uh, I did two tours in Afghanistan. You know, I love the country. I'd go back in a heartbeat. Yeah, they tried to blow us up a few times, you know, and drop mortars on us. But if somebody came to, to America and did the same thing, I would probably do the same thing back to them. I get it. Mm. You know, I'm, you got some farmer guy in Afghanistan who's trying to make money for, to support his wife and kids. I'm not mad at you. I get it. So officially retire from the Army last year. March, or, no, this no. year. This year. This March year. 1st, 2019. I officially retired. And now you are I'm doing a, work with YWAM Emerge. That's correct. I'm not a YWAMer per se. Yeah. I've never done DTS. Yeah. That's actually a pretty interesting story too, how I got connected with, y, with Emerge. So before my last deployment to Afghanistan, my wife tells me I want to do a mission trip with the kids. All right, cool. I'm down for it. So she finds this place in Colorado Springs, YWAM base, to do her DTS. And back then it was called Cross. She was called Crossroads, which is a family DTS. Husband, wife, kids all go together. Yeah. But for some reason, dad couldn't go. I was a little busy. I was in Afghanistan. Yeah. And so what's funny is I, I met. Uh, I'm in Afghanistan. I get this phone call. So this guy named Josh. He's like, "Hey man, this is kind of weird." Uh, usually husband and wife come to this. We want to make sure it's, you're cool with it. I'm like, yeah, I'm totally down. He want to make sure that she wasn't running from a bad husband. That I, I was actually supportive of them doing this mission trip. I'm like, yeah, I'm all behind it. He's like, all right, cool. They're, they're, they'll do it. So they actually do uh, their six months, three months here in College Springs, and then three months in Turkey while I'm in Afghanistan doing my thing. And what's interesting too is while I was in Afghanistan that tour, um, there was a bombing in a town called Zaranj, which is south of Farah, where, where I was at. And I uh, didn't really understand what had happened. In Afghanistan, when I realized, too, that these, air quotes here, these NGOs mm-hmm. in Afghanistan weren't really NGOs, but really 
using an NGO front to be missionaries. Yeah. So my first tour, there were actually 12 Koreans who went missing in Afghanistan, in um, Ghazni. I actually went looking for them. My unit was part of looking for these guys. And that's when it, like, the light went off. Like, oh, these guys are really missionaries. They're not really NGOs. Mm-hmm. Like, you guys are nuts. So I get back from Afghanistan. I've, I tell my commander, my first sergeant, hey, I need to fly to Colorado Springs to pick my wife and kids because they did this mission trip and they're totally supportive of it. So I fly out here and I meet some guys here at the YWAM base. I'm like, you guys are nuts. Mm. These are flat out nuts. As a military guy, I have my armor. I'm in an up-armored vehicle. I have a weapon to protect myself. You guys have nothing. Like, that's nuts. Yeah. That's just crazy. Yeah. And we know one of the guys that was there, actually, for the bombing. So then, what was crazy was, I got offered a job to come recruit for special operations here at Fort Carson. So my last job in the military, I was civil affairs, which I equated as the Army's version of a short-term missionary. We go work in countries. We could be the only military guys in the country. We go find out causes of instability and how can we fix these by doing projects and, and whatnot. So, so I get a job to come recruit here because I know, and I'm like, yeah, College Springs, all these Christian missionary you know, organizations here. I'm like, yeah, I can get tied in, blah, blah, blah. And so and so I get tied into Holy Smokes too, was uh, a friend of ours, Vance Patterson, Yep. Our daughters played soccer together. Yeah. He walks up one day at a game. He goes, hey. He knows I'm a Christian. He goes, kind of on the DL. Do you smoke cigars? Do you drink? I'm like, I'm not against it. I drink. I don't smoke cigars, really. He's like, all right, there's a group of guys I want you to meet, blah, blah, blah. And so months go by, and our oldest daughter, I was having some issues like serious issues. She'd written suicide notes, uh, all kinds of stuff. It was hmm. bad time. And I called Vance and said, hey, Vance, I, I've got to talk. He goes, all right, meet me at the rendezvous Wednesday, 4.30. I said, all right, I'm there. And it was, it was awesome. I mean, I actually had a place as a guy where I could go to. Hmm. And just spew all that was going on inside of me with no judgment, no nothing. You know, as again, those guys that I thought were weird hugging me, <laughs> same concept, right? You know, it was this safe space where I could share my innermost feelings and thoughts and be okay with it, you know, and they were okay with it. So that's how I met Josh Imhoff, who runs Why I Emerge and Emerge Aquaponics. Is one day we're at Holy Smokes at Paul's house. We're sitting next to each other. He goes, hey, tell me your story. Tell him my story. We find out like, hey, you're that guy who called me in Afghanistan. He's like, you're that guy called in Afghanistan. Yeah. And so we, I heard a story. I'm like, what's what you're doing? I started volunteering back when they were at their old property at Mustang as much as I could. I mean, military guy, I got sometime off, some, you know. Yeah. Uh, I really felt something like this is really what I was trained to do in the military. Like, how can I go into a country and actually help poverty, help people who are hungry? Oh, wow, I can do this 
by helping them create their own business, growing food. You know, it just it lined up perfectly with what I was trained through in the military. And I can actually do it with ministry. So talk a little bit about YWAM Emerge, what you guys are doing with aquaponics and what kind of the vision is for that. So our mission statement is we help organizations launch local food systems that reduce poverty with dignity. So we go in, we help establish, we help, like we have a base in Central Asia, uh, we're trying to create business. A lot of times in some of these closed countries, local pastors are taking money from the West. Well, their police agencies think they're taking money from the CIA, whatever, right? So they harass them. But if we can help them create their own local money, their own business, their own, help their own economy, they leave them alone. And they can actually preach the gospel and do what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So that's what we do. We help go in and create business. We help feed people. Before my time, Emerge has built greenhouses in Kenya, Guatemala, again, Central Asia, where else? South Africa. I think that's about, I think that's all that I know of off the top of my head. Yeah. But yeah, we're actually, right now we're in the process of creating like a reproducible system where we can create, like buy the equipment locally to help invest in the economy there. So we're building grow beds out of conduit pipe. Uh, we're using what's called an IBC tank for fish tanks and all the filtration, which it could be locally procured. We'll hire local labor to build it. Mm. And, I mean, so in, in Central Asia, if a guy can make a thousand bucks a month, that's a good living. Yeah. And so we've designed the system, an aquaponics system that should create about a thousand dollars of income for a local pastor or church planter or missionary. So then it lessens his time of actually having to have an outside job to feed for his, provide for his family. He can do this four or five hours a day and then go do other stuff and then actually feed his family, the fish and the vegetables. What kinds of vegetables are you guys able to grow with aquaponic systems? Oh man, sky's the limit. I mean, we, so here locally we do leafy greens, Yeah. but you can do tomatoes, you can do cucumbers, you can do beans, you can do, uh, one of the guys that we work with has actually seen like a papaya, mm. a banana tree. Yeah. There's, I mean, it's, Sky's the limit. Yeah. Just how you set it up. Yeah. And I'm not the smartest guy yet. I'm still learning aquaponics. Yeah. So luckily we work with guys who are way smarter than I that actually have done more than I have done. Um, but yeah, I mean, sky's the limit. You can do, as long as you set your system up properly, you have the right environment for those crops to grow in the greenhouse. You can do all kinds of things. Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? So I'm actually headed to Lebanon and Jordan in February. Um, my son did a missions trip to Lebanon this past summer with his high school. <clears throat> I brought the local pastor in who works with refugees, orphans, and widows from the, the Syrian refugee crisis. And I got first-hand taste of that when I was in the military. I went to Jordan for a month and saw what's really going on over there. So I brought the pastor into the, to the, our greenhouse here locally. I said, hey, Pastor Mohammed, can this help you guys? His first words were like, so when are you coming to Lebanon to do this? <laughs> you tell me. So I'm going in February as a, like a, a fact-finding vision just to really see what we can do, how we can help out the refugees in Jordan and then the orphans and stuff in Lebanon. 
How can people support you? How can they learn more? View the website, ywmemerge.org. Find out the whole vision of ywmemerge there. I've never asked for support because I live off my retired military check. So give to YWM Emerge. I'm, I'm happy. Jason Burkett, let's get to rapid fire questions. Hey everyone, before we get to the rapid fire segment, I'd like to talk about today's sponsor, you. I recently received a note on Facebook that said, Steve, I've stumbled onto your podcast and I've really been enjoying it. Thanks for being a part of loosening legalism's grip on my heart. This message moved me like no other message I've received thus far about this show. You'll hear my story next month, but I came out of a very legalistic background and it nearly drove me away from the faith. So Carl, Kay, and I have a heart to take this message to more people. Right now, we're paying out of our pocket to grow this. I'm paying my editors, Phidias, Fail, and Belray, my web developer, Sangram, and I'm donating my time for interviewing and recording. But if what we've done through this group, through the meetings, and through this podcast have made an impact on you, please consider a tax-deductible donation. You can go to paypal.me slash holysmokesclub and make a donation there. As always, that link is in the show notes, but it's paypal.me slash holysmokesclub. Thanks. Rapid fire. Fire. Here. Cigars or pipe? I would say pipe because as a kid, I had what was called a FIFA. My grandfather smoked pipes as long as I've known him. I, I have, when he passed away, I got all his pipes. Yeah. I'd say pipes, but cigars are great. Like, I think pipe is more for solitary. Cigar is more community. Favorite cigar? Free. I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not a cigar, I'm not a cigar connoisseur. So I, to be honest, I don't know. Free. Any cigar. It's not about the cigar for me. It's about the conversation, the community. It's not about the cigar for me. It's about the, the guys and, you know, we're hanging out with. Favorite pipe tobacco? So my grandpa always smoked Sir Walter Raleigh. The blue package. So that's what I have. That's what my grandpa smoked. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Derek just walked over with a handful <laughs> of sticks for Jason. Favorite liquid pairing with your cigar or pipe? I prefer like a bourbon or a scotch, but beer's good too. Again, it's not about the beverage or the cigar. It's about what's happening around in the community. Most memorable cigar or pipe experience? Probably that night at the rendezvous with Vance the first, first time. time. Yeah. Marvel or DC? Marvel all day. Star Wars or Star Trek? Dude, Star Wars. I know the answer to that one. Yeah. But. Well, it's, so I actually saw the first Star Wars in theater for my sixth birthday. Mm. So Star Wars is a lot for me. Favorite food? I really love Korean food. I spent a year in Korea in Chopshebab, Yaki Mandu, Kimchi. Love that stuff. I love shawarma. I love kefta. And I love uh, this dessert in the Middle East called kanafa. It's like crack. Um, you can't get enough of it. It's 
Filo dough, goat cheese, filo dough, topped with honey and pistachio. You cannot oh beat it. Oh my goodness. Yes. That sounds... That's why I told Pastor Muhammad, as long as you have some shawarma, some kefta, and kanafa, I'm there. He's like, deal. <laughs> deal. <laughs> Nickname growing up or in college? So what's funny is my kids call my father grumpy. Instead of grandpa, they call him grumpy. I was technically the first grumpy. I had a girl in high school call me grumpy because I'd answer a telephone. I go, yeah. <laughs> so I was, I've always been grumpy. So yeah, grumpy. Dogs, cats, neither or both? Dogs all the way. Toilet paper, over, under, doesn't matter? Over, come on. Best There's only one way. Best type of cheese? Fromage de chef. Goat cheese. All right. If you were arrested with no explanation, oh, see, what would your family or friends think that you did? Like today or BC days? Because that changes. Today. Okay, today. 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 Ooh, man. See, everybody's been saying speeding. That's just so blah. Probably nothing. I don't do anything anymore that would cause me to get arrested. I'm, I've grown up and learned. Are you a reader? I used to be. Favorite books? Uh, as a kid, my favorite book was actually Catcher in the Rye. Mm. That was, like, I had to do a, a paper on it in high school. So, Catcher in the Rye. It's probably not the most Christian book in the world, but. If you were stranded on a desert island with only one movie, what would it be? Ooh, that's tough. Because it'd be like. Braveheart or Gladiator or The Patriot, something like that. All right, last two questions. If you were to have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, would they be kid named Jesus? <clears throat> so the first one would be Alexander the Great because I spent time in Afghanistan and I've seen his citadels in Farah, mm. Kandahar, and Gardez. Mm. Yeah, it's crazy. I was like, asked people one time, what is, what is this thing I see? The last one, Alexander the Great. Wow. Yeah. Crazy, right? Yeah. Uh, it, of course, he's a military man. Yeah. Second guy would be Patton. Uh, I actually did a report on him in high school or junior high. We all remember the George C. Scott version where he stood in front of the flag and all that kind of stuff. So I had, had to create this Pringle man out of, out of that and was Patton with the flag. Again, military guy. Was he a pipe guy or a cigar guy? I don't know. I think he was a cigar guy. Wouldn't surprise me. <clears throat> and then the third would be my grandfather. Spent 30 years in the Marine Corps. He was a pipe guy. And I never got to, a chance to, to smoke with him. Mm. So, yeah. All right, last question. We're meeting one year from today. I got a bottle of champagne. What are we celebrating? I don't know. I think it would be more about, like, why Whammy Merge is, is done. Because it's not about me. It's about what the organization I work for is doing. You know, I, I'm hoping we have a training base in Central Asia, a training base in South Africa. Hopefully, we've got some stuff going in Lebanon and Jordan to help refugees and the orphans there. Yeah, so it's not about, it's about what the organization I work for is doing. The website is ywamemerge.org. Correct. So That's go correct. there. Learn more about them. Yep. 
consider supporting them. Yes. It's a great organization. I love you guys. I love Josh. I love your vision, where you want to take this. So, yeah. Holy smokers, let's come through and let's let's see them get to that place where they can right. have those centers. That's right. Jason Burkett, thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast, brother. My pleasure. Go Raiders. That's right.